if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. So, Protestants call it evangelism. Catholics call it evangelization. But in either case, it comes from the biblical Greek word evangel, which means good news. And it refers to the process and means by which we share the Christian faith and you know, help people to come into full communion with the church. So ever since I got evangelized myself as a college student at a very large and very leftist university that was really a hostile environment for Christians, I've been involved in doing evangelization for others. First, as a student leader in a campus Christian ministry, which eventually led me to attend seminary and into missions and evangelization full-time. But one thing that has always frustrated me about evangelism or evangelization is how each of us tends to normalize or project our own path or our own personality as the only legitimate way to reach others. So, however it was that we came to Christ and discovered his church, we assume is the right way for everyone else to come to Christ and discover his church. More than assuming it, we can get downright strident and insist on it. You see, for some, the path to Christ begins in their heart. For others, it starts in their mind. Some paths begin at the eyes and the ears as someone is struck by the beauty of the church's art and architecture, liturgy, and music. Now, to be clear, wherever it is that these paths begin, they all converge to the same point, Christ and a full communion with his church. But we have this awful tendency to tell people who start in a different place that they're on the wrong road or to tell evangelists working on a certain angle that doesn't appeal to us that they're doing evangelization wrong. I guess the reason I'm saying all this is because in our last two episodes, we met someone who followed his heart into the Catholic faith. Father Michael Burt describes himself as a, a rational person by nature and nurture including his 22 years in the military. But he followed his heart into the Catholic Church, attracted by the mystery of the sacraments. But in this episode, I want to introduce you to someone whose path began in the mind, in intellectual study, particularly the study of church history. Over the years, a lot of my teaching in evangelization has centered on sharing Christ by sharing the story of his church. And believe me, I've gotten a lot of criticism over the years for this approach. Even my friends who are heart people or eyes and ear people sort of roll their eyes at the notion of someone finding faith by studying history. Nothing sounds more dull to them, nothing more passionless 
They'll say that faith is and faith must begin with a personal encounter with Jesus, not in some dusty old books about theology and church councils and dead popes. And yet, that's where my path to Christ began in those dusty old books and ideas and facts and figures. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, I've been able to help in however small a way others to find him along this path as well. Today, I'd like to introduce you to one of them. Corey Lakatos is part of our team at Our Lady of the Lake and the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization. Now, I met Corey when he and his future wife were part of a college student ministry that my wife and I were leading. And during the years that I was on my road to Rome, I was sharing what I was discovering with the students about the history and heritage of the Catholic Church. And then, well, I'll let Corey tell you his story. As he does, remember that while all roads may lead to Rome, they arrive there from many different directions. Well, welcome. I'm here today with Corey Lakatos. Thanks for having me, Greg. Thanks, Corey. I'm glad you're here. Uh, just to kick things off, why don't you just introduce yourself? Who who are you, and tell us a little bit about who you are. I am a employee of the Catholic Church. I work at Our Lady of the Lake here in Holland. Um, but to give a little bit of background on myself, um, I'm not originally from Holland, but I am uh, born and bred Michigander. I'm from the east side of the state, so I grew up there um, in a pretty pretty normal um, blue collar sort of family. Um, I have three siblings. My and my grew up with my parents and um, went through the public schools. And my my family was um, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, um, pretty faithfully attending um, churchgoers. Um, I ended up after I graduated from high school going to Hope College here in Holland. Um, so that's how I, I ended up in this community. Um, I met um, my now wife while I was there. Um, and then while I was um, at Hope as a student, I started going to a little uh, non-denominational uh, church. Um, that's where I originally met Greg. Um, he was one of the pastors there at that time. Um, I graduated. I ended up staying in Holland. Um, I worked for Greg um, in a in a different capacity for a while. Um, I've also that was in um, marketing and publishing. I've also worked um, a little bit in higher ed administration um, at Hope College, um, and then all of that kind of led up to where I I currently am um, working for the church. Um, my title is Director of Community Life, um, which encompasses a, a fair bit, um, a fair range of things, but I am in charge of facilitating how people um, interact with the church, help them find what they need here, um, get connected with the community, provide opportunities for them, whether that's large groups and events or whether that's small groups and Bible studies um, and prayer groups and, and that kind of thing. Um, I also do a fair bit with just uh, corporate devotions like adoration, like the rosary, like processions, things like that, that create that sense of spiritual community here at the parish. Um, a little bit more about myself. Like I, like I said, I'm married. We have uh, three young kids. Uh, my, my oldest will be five here pretty soon. Um, and then I've got um, a three-year-old and um, one that was just born uh, this past 
April, so she's not yet a year old. So, Cora, you grew up in the Lutheran Church, mm-hmm. um, not in the Catholic Church. So somehow you became Catholic. Why don't you share with us how you became Catholic? Absolutely. Um, so when I was growing up in the Lutheran Church, I didn't know a great deal about the Catholic Church. I mean, obviously there was the whole founding origin story of the Lutheran Church, which in, involves Martin Luther's, um, well, the way we would have thought of it, I suppose, is re- rejection of, of the hierarchy and the doctrines of the Catholic Church and starting um, what we would have perceived as sort of the the purified or the um, the real deal new um Christian church at that point, um, with the, with the advent of Protestantism. And so, um, I didn't grow up with a ton of exposure to the Catholic church other than as kind of, it was what our church was, was set up against in Protestantism in general. Um, and so was there, there was this sense of are Catholics Christians exactly, maybe not, or maybe some of them are, um, it, it wasn't really clear, uh, clearly articulated at that time. And then when I went to Hope, um, I kind of ended up in a sort of non-denominational standpoint. Um, So I I encountered Reformed Christians. I encountered a lot of uh, just non-denominational evangelicals and a lot of charismatics um, and ran in those circles for my years at Hope. Um, And then, like I said before, I was at at the small non-denom church that that you were pastoring at. Um, and all of all of those contexts were definitely valuable uh, steps along my journey, places where I learned about Christ and about his church um, and really grew and came to know the Lord better. Um, and so I'm very, very grateful to all of those people, certainly uh, grateful for my upbringing in the Lutheran church and in, in my family and in that context. And so I wasn't actively looking for some kind of, um, you know, change of position in the, in the spectrum of, of different Christian groups. But by the time I was out of hope, I wasn't really identifying as a Lutheran anymore. Um, that was my background, but I was sort of non-denominationally Christian and interested in the idea of the wider Christian church and Christian unity among different groups. Um, at this point in my mind, that would have still meant different Protestant groups, but um, things just kind of kept coming up that made me curious. Um, Greg, your your preaching at at the church we were at had a had a big impact on me and, and was a big part of that um, because one of the things or several of the things that you were doing at that time was um, digging deeper into the the history of the church um, because I had this gap in my understanding of the history of the church, um, which started to become really really apparent to me. Um, I was a history major in college. I've always been interested in history, but in my faith, I had the, an understanding of the history of the early church. So the things that are laid out in, in scripture, um, the gospels, the book of Acts, the letters, and then the first couple of centuries were known to me kind of up through the fall of the empire, up through Augustine, maybe, um, because Augustine is, is very popular, um, with, with Protestants and with, with Lutherans. And then there was this kind of thousand-year gap between that right. and and the Protestant Reformation, right. and, and you know it's not that I knew nothing at all about that that period of history. Right. I knew some things about it, but it it wasn't sort of seen as my spiritual heritage. It wasn't seen as something that we should 
really be all that interested in because it was kind of it was basically what Luther was was rejecting was was the narrative that that I understood at right. that time. And it's interesting the dogma frankly in all of the evangelical protestants all the protestant churches the notion was that you kind of get back to the reformation and then there is this dark period of church history where the word was lost the truth was lost right. and to sort of even talk about those things to sort of even explore them to read those authors to even be open to those feels like maybe nobody ever said it but it feels a little bit like you're betraying your protestantism yeah, I would agree with that. And and I think it was analogous to how I understood the Catholic Church growing up, where it's kind of this black box. There might be some Christians in there in, you know, right. those 10 centuries. Right. But I don't know. And it's kind of buried under a whole lot of other stuff that right. is not good um, from that from that Protestant perspective. And so really better not to open the box and and start rummaging through it. It's just assumed that medieval Catholicism is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the starting point for it. The reason I'm probing this a little bit is there's, for someone like yourself, there is an inherent barrier to sort of look into that. Mm -hmm. You have to be willing to kind of push through some of those, that resistance that has been programmed into you. So talk a little bit about how that you were able to begin reading it with an open mind. Yeah, I think it, it really started with simple curiosity um, because I, I have always been interested in history. I studied history. And, and so if, if I keep encountering this or, or hearing about um, either, you know, devotional practices during that period or um, the history of the church and, and, you know, it's in various iterations, whether that's the history of... Um, you know, how, how people prayed and like devotional history or, or cultural history of the church, spiritual history, or whether that's, you know, the history of the popes or, or institutionally of the church. Um, all of that keeps coming up and you think, well, so different aspects of the history of the church kept, kept coming up or, or whether that's the history of uh, sort of the development of the, of doctrine um, in councils, or even if you reach further back to the, to the creed, um, in, in the very early councils, um, you start to see, even if you're not digging in very deep, but you're just seeing certain aspects of it, that all of this does have bearing on our faith today, even if it, even if it's Protestant faith, like you, all of that is the, the descendants, I'm sorry, the, the ancestors of, of us today and of, and of what we do. So you couldn't have Protestant faith, you can have Lutheran faith or even my sort of non-denominational faith without all of that. Um, and from a Protestant perspective, you're used to thinking that all of this comes straight from the Bible without any mediation. But if you have a historical perspective, that idea falls apart pretty fast because you can't right. just go to the Bible and say, okay, the church ought to look like exactly what I am doing right now right. in the 21st century. Clearly that came from somewhere and there's a lot of different ways that it's being expressed now. There's not only in the Protestant church, but there's there's the Catholic way of being Christian too, which if you start looking at the history, starts to look like it's a lot more in continuity with what came before and what I was practicing started to look like it was in some kind of profound discontinuity from that. And that for me just 
it, it increased my curiosity, but it also created a sort of dis-ease, I think, with, with the way I was practicing the Christian faith, the way I was relating to the church and, and to Christ himself, because if it, if it was new, even relatively new on the historical scale of things, 500 years or, or 100 years or wherever you want to locate the origin of how I was being Christian, then in what sense is it authentic was a question that came up for me. An, another thing that I was becoming very interested in at that time was the the sacramental character of the right. church, um, right. which is something that that is present in a certain form in the Lutheran Church because um, there's a there's in in terms of the spectrum of Protestantism there's a, a higher understanding of the sacrament of it's the most sacramental right. of the Protestant faiths right and but even even in Lutheranism you really only have the two sacraments correct. Um, the the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist and baptism. And then you have in sort of, I don't know if I want to say vestigial form, but in in some existing form, you you do have things like confirmation and, and ordination, right. but they're not, they're not seen in a, in a sacramental way. But hearing more about the sacraments and reading more and as you were preaching, kind of mm -hmm. bringing up aspects of the sacraments, it, it really intrigued me and made a lot of sense to me because the sacraments being an extension of the idea of the incarnation, mm -hmm. that you have God who is spirit um, and man who is both flesh and spirit, who is material, and God becomes man, becomes tactile, becomes approachable, becomes, you know, when Jesus was walking the earth, people could touch him and talk to him and... The word is incarnate. Right, exactly. The word made flesh. And that's how we can approach God and, and how God first approaches us and, and how we know him and, and how we can come to love him and serve him. It just, you know, to pick up on that for mm -hmm. a second, I was going through this kind of 20-year road to Rome evolution towards Catholicism. And so a lot of my investigations, a lot of the things that I was reading, questions that I was asking began to creep out into the teaching that I was doing there. And Corey was also involved in the, the student ministry that we were led at. And we had a lot of conversations in that student ministry. But one of the things that was occurring to me at the time, and I suppose it became part of the conversation that mm -hmm. I was having with Corey and some of the other college students and and people in that church was that it wasn't just the significance of the sacraments, but, but it's sort of like the primacy of place. What was occurring to me in real time was that there are three things that happen in every Christian church service. There's a sermon and there's singing and there's sacraments. The issue is what is the order of primacy for those? Sure, the, what's the ratio the, of how much time and energy you put into them. Or what's in the yeah. center? Like what orbits around the other? I mean, you can simply go to those churches in, in in Switzerland and the Netherlands that were formerly Catholic churches, some some in England or whatever, and see that the altars were stripped out, everything was done, and everything's reoriented around a pulpit because now the center of what we do is the reading of the word and the listening to the word and everything else orbits around that. Then you had the charismatic movement or the contemporary evangelical movement in which the singing has moved to the center. So it's the drum set. Yes, yeah, the drum set. Well, right. In a contemporary evangelical church, um, used to be just of the charismatic branch, but I think of most of them now, what we talk about is the worship. 
and it's the worship time. And the worship is the singing of the five or six praise songs. That's the worship. It's not that the whole thing is worship. It's that's the worship time. And then a, a guy comes out and does a TED talk. And once a month, there's maybe a sacrament or something. And what was occurring to me at the time, I think, is why have the sacraments been relegated to orbit around at the periphery? And the more that I looked into the, the church of history, it seemed that the sacraments took primacy of place. I think you see that even in the letters of St. Paul, right. if you want to talk about that. Yeah. Absolutely. And then when you start going to the church of the year 100, so you're talking about a generation or so after the apostles, it becomes really clear that the sacraments are central. And then the teaching and the singing and all of that orbits around the sacraments. So in other words, not to take you off beam here, but I think we were both living through this period where what I felt was what we had taken evangelical Protestantism and run with it as far as we could to the end of the tether. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you realized when you got to the end of it, there was no were further out that we could go. And we began to question whether we were doing this right to begin with. And there's this holy dissonance, as Corey is explaining, and we were both going through this, I think, simultaneously, which we'll get into in a second, because we both entered the Catholic Church on the same day. And what we discovered at that time was that we needed to move the sacraments to the center. And when you did that, well the road to Rome kind of opened up in front of us. So I didn't mean to shipwreck you, but I... Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think all of that is important and, and relevant to what I was saying, um, which is that the the sacrament is the the physical and spiritual together. It, it's, it's how... Um, it's sort of the primary way, not the only way, but the, the primary way that we have contact with God and with the sacred. And... The, the other ways that you're talking about, whether it's the preaching of the word or, um, or worship through, through song and, and other expressions of worship, all of that is good and important, but that doesn't have those, those two same, it's more abstract. Um, it's, it's not as concrete as the sacrament itself. Well, they're not, they're not incarnational. Right. So anyway, not to shipwreck you, but these were the kinds of conversations that we were having, and I was having with the student ministry and the leaders in the student ministry like Corey, and we were all sort of going through this period of uh, discovery at the mm -hmm. same time. So for me, um, all of those things were raising questions, um, making me curious. Um, and so I started reading. I picked up the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I, I picked up um, a few few other books, a couple of them uh, I borrowed from you actually. Um, and the basic premise of my reading at that point was, was simply to establish are Catholics Christians? Are they my brothers and sisters in Christ? Like to what degree should I be seeing myself as spiritually akin to them? It was based on curiosity and also attraction, but it didn't start as like, I'm going to go see whether I should become Catholic or not. Right. Um, and so to answer your question about, um, others who, who may be on this process or people who know that, um, that, it, that it may well start um, a couple steps back from someone saying, I'm wondering whether I should join the Catholic Church. Right. It may start with a more fundamental question about the Catholic Church and exactly. what it is and what its relationship to Christ is. Well, just, just to interrupt that for the, from a process standpoint, right? People can be, in a sense, on a 
to some sense on a journey to sure. where God is leading him. I know you and I are both fans of G.K. Chesterton and his uh, Father Brown Mysteries. Yes, and there's yeah. this wonderful line in one of the Father Brown Mysteries where Father Brown says, uh, I hooked him with a line long enough yes. to reel him in from the other end of the world. Right? That's how God sort of draws us in. If you think of a, a process where you start on you know, square one and square 10 is you enter the Catholic church. You may sort of be aware that you're on five or six or seven and that you're really considering going through RCIA and entering the Catholic church. You, but you may be at one or two and not aware of it. And what you're feeling right now are the kinds of things that Corey is describing where people are just starting to feel dissatisfaction with where they are, with the answers that they have, that they're understanding of Christianity has holes in it or gaps mm -hmm. for them or it no longer is making sense to them. And if you're in that place of sort of dissonance, you're starting to trying to get answers and you don't know that where that's going to lead. And Catholicism may be the answer to the questions, but you're not yet there. Right. Exactly. Um, and so I started reading and investigating and, and I've found in, in my life that something else um, that, that Chesterton said has been true of me, that once you start to be fair to the Catholic Church, you, you start to be attracted to her, that, that there isn't really a middle ground of like, I'm just going to sort of dispassionately right. look at this. Um, well, that's because, and I just, I know, you know, we're kind of coming back to this, but when you were talking earlier about growing up in the Lutheran Missouri Synod, when you're in that kind of place, your understanding of Catholicism is honestly at a cartoon level. It's like an anime cartoon or something. You have this comic book understanding. Right, it's a of sort Catholic of caricature. It's yeah. a caricature. It's, it's a comic book understanding of Catholic doctrine, a comic book understanding. And what you begin to realize is that this is a caricature. And if I want to take it, if I want to be intellectually honest, I have to not take a caricature or a comic book version of it. I have to actually see what it is. So, Corey, this is great. What I want to do is talk to us a little bit about, and then we're going to carry this interview over into okay. this conversation over into the next episode, but talk about how the process went for you. So you were, we were both part of this process, and at that point you were an adult leader, a postgraduate leader of the student ministry that uh, I was involved with. But at that point then my wife and I realized it was time to pull the trigger. Talk a little bit about what that process was for you. Yeah, absolutely. So I, well, both of us entered the church um, at the Easter Vigil of 2016. So about a year and a half, I want to say before that, or, or maybe two years was when things really started heating up for me in, in terms of my investigations. Um, partly because of your 20-year journey, I didn't have to have a 20-year journey. I could have a two-year journey, um, which, which is great. Um, really saves time. Um, <laughs> and, and so there was, there was the reading, um, there is prayer, investigation. Um, my wife was having a parallel journey along with mine at the same time. So I was reading and praying and talking about this stuff and talking her ear off about it. And she was um, reading and thinking about it at the same time. Um, one thing that was really helpful from her perspective was reading other people's journeys, reading about other people's stories. I was doing a lot of comparison contrast. I had this document that I had written up with like columns for <laughs> um, the Catholic church and the Orthodox church and Lutheran church and Calvinism. You and spreadsheeted out your yes, faith. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
And so I became increasingly convinced that that was where the Lord was directing me because underlying all this is that I was raised as a Christian. I, I was a practicing Christian. So it wasn't so much I was looking for Christ as if I didn't already know and love Christ. I was looking for how, what is the best way to do this? What, what is the, the context? Um, and, and that was another aspect of it uh, that I, I could have alluded to um, earlier is, is the communal aspect of the church, which is a little weaker in, in Protestantism, especially um, non-denominational, that this is a communion throughout time and space and, and something that I need to be a part of. And so I, I, I became fairly convinced of that. And then about uh, the same time you were coming to, to some important stages of your uh, journey, I won't say too, too much about that, but we, we talked and we uh, kind of sh- shared what our, our different perspectives were. And then I, shortly after that, uh, approached uh, the, uh, the, the staff member in charge of RCIA at, at the parish that was closest to where I lived. Mm-hmm. What a great story. So what we're going to do is we're sort of at the end of our time for this interview. We're going to come back in the next episode and hear a little bit more about what insights you have from your own journey and from your work in the Catholic Church now for the last five years about how other people can either find the Catholic Church for themselves or help their friends or loved ones or help parish leaders make their parish more effective for evangelization. So thank you, Corey. We'll come back in the next episode and have you unpack that for us. All right. Thanks. When Catholics are confirmed into the church, they choose a particular saint that they look to as a, as a role model. It's called your confirmation name. Corey and his wife were confirmed on the same day as my wife and I at a different parish. And he chose St. John Newman. And the reasons that he chose St. John Newman are, are pretty interesting. You see, Newman was a history professor at Oxford University in England, and Corey was doing a semester abroad at Oxford when Newman was canonized by Pope Benedict there. And Newman himself converted to Catholicism through his study of the early church councils. Perhaps Newman's most famous quote was, To be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. As Corey has explained it, for Newman and for Corey and, well, for me, to enter into the story of the church is to be immersed in the Catholic story. I mean, one simply cannot take Jesus' great commission to his apostles seriously without realizing that they fulfilled that commission by founding one holy Catholic and apostolic church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones and two hemispheres. So, to those of you whose road to Rome began in your heart, in the inner life of prayer, in the beauty of liturgy or art, remember that some of our roads originated from different places, from ideas, from inside books and stories, and even from the facts and dates of history. The new evangelization arrives at Christ and his church along many roads. And our job as evangelists 
is to travel them all, keeping them all clear of obstruction and helping pilgrims to move along them, higher up and deeper into the mysterious truth of the Word made flesh. One of the best ways to learn more about Catholicism, its beliefs and practices, saints and stories, heritage and culture, is to visit the places where the Catholic story actually unfolded with someone who can explain it, answer your questions, and help you apply it to your life, especially as a part of a group of pilgrims that are sharing and supporting and praying for each other as they discover together. That's why the ministry that produces this podcast, One Whirling Adventure, offers pilgrimage trips. I'll be your guide and teacher unpacking Catholic faith, life, and heritage for you in some of Catholicism's most significant sites. If you'd like to join me for a pilgrimage to places like Italy, Ireland, Israel, or France, visit the website oneworlingadventure.org to see the dates and details of upcoming trips. That's oneworlingadventure.org and click on the travel tab at the top. Let's discover our Catholic faith and heritage together. Our time is winding down, but we end every episode by learning and leaning into one of the classic Catholic prayers. For those of you who are considering Catholicism, consider making this prayer a regular part of your relationship with God. Lord, teach us to pray the prayers of the church with all the saints. Everywhere that you see Catholics, you see them make the sign of the cross. Sometimes you can spot someone who's faking it because they do it wrong. You see this all the time in television and movies. Some actor is playing a Catholic character and makes the sign of the cross incorrectly, which I never understood because you'd think as part of their preparation for the role, they'd learn how or some Catholic on the set would show them. I mean, it's not hard to find out the right way to do it. I know that because when I was on my road to Rome, the first time I was going to go to a Catholic mass, I was super nervous about not looking out of place. So I just YouTubed how to make the sign of the cross and boom. Practiced it in the mirror a few times and figured I could blend in real stealthily. Not sure that I did, but I thought so. And by the way, for all of you actors and actresses out there, for Roman Catholics from the Middle Ages on, it's three fingers for the Trinity, then left shoulder first. Greek Orthodox Christians go right shoulder first, then left. Anyway, the sign of the cross is what the church calls a sacramental. Now, sacramentals are not the same as the sacraments. Sacramentals are sacred signs that have been instituted by the church that focus and cultivate our faith, and they sanctify or bring holiness to the circumstances of daily life. For example, crucifixes are sacramentals. Now, I wear a crucifix on a chain around my neck, and it hangs directly over my heart. It was blessed by a priest. I'm under no illusion. It's not a magical object, and I don't think that it saves me. But it is a constant reminder that I belong, soul and body, to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
The sign of the cross is a tangible reminder of the same thing. It's a physical action that we take that marks the center of our body because it's centered over the heart with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's also a prayer. In fact, it's one of the most fundamental of all Catholic prayers. In fact, it's so fundamental that it's often combined with other prayers. So, for example, we might make and pray the sign of the cross, then pray the Our Father or the Hail Mary or whatnot, and then close by praying the sign of the cross again. And here's what makes it a significant prayer. In the sign of the cross, we reaffirm our baptism. You see, the Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life. It's the gateway to life in the Spirit and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. But at the baptismal font, most of us are passive recipients of the sacrament because most of us are infants when we're there. The priest baptizes us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now that regenerates us through water in the word. And when we pray the sign of the cross, we are calling on God to continue this work of regeneration that began in that water. So, in 15 simple words, we ask the Holy Spirit to cultivate faith and holiness in us until we become mature in Christ. So, learn the sign of the cross the right way and pray it often. Pray it when you wake, when you eat, when you pray other prayers, throughout the tasks and trials of your day, and when you lie down to rest at night. Because every time that you do, you declare that you were baptized into the new covenant of Christ, you claim its promises, and you commit yourself to your part in it. The Sign of the Cross In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.